I've known Edith for a long time. I think it was like around 2007 or so. I think Edith is like probably the only person that really believed in me as a potential co-founder. I think we were just like, we're gonna start a startup, right? We knew if I think from that point, like it was an eventuality. So I had the first reality world startup and I learned many things I was bad at. And then I decided to go learn a bunch about all of them. And eventually it would be the right time to do another one. But I didn't want to do it before I felt like I knew the right set of things. I think Paul happened to meet me at the exact moment where I knew I was ready. I was like, I will regret it forever if I don't do this. Hi, I'm Paul Berger, founder of CircleCI. I'm Edith Harba, CEO and co-founder at LaunchDarkly. And you're listening to To Be Continuous, a podcast about continuous delivery and software development. You can get in touch with us anytime at our Twitter handle, at ContinuousCast. The show is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. So what made you decide to do a startup? I did my first startup a little over 10 years ago. And it probably should have been a reality TV show instead of a startup where five of my friends and I decided to have a company, except four of them were dating each other, two pairs of two, and none of us had ever not lived in a dorm. And it went about as well as could be expected, but it was enough to convince me to do it again. Now would be a great time for you to introduce yourself. I am Ellen Chiza, and I am Paul's co-founder and the CEO of Ellen and Paul's new startup.com. And were you one of the two pairs or the fifth person? There were two of us who weren't in one of those ill-fated relationships, so I guess I was the fifth person or the sixth person. So what made you decide to do a startup? So uh, I've known Edith for a long time. I think it was like around 2007 or so. We were having a Thanksgiving dinner. Edith was at my house. I cook a mean Thanksgiving dinner. Turducken. Yeah, it was good. Mm. And uh, I think we were just like, we're going to start a startup, right? Like, you know that, right? Took a little while for the timing to shake out, but we knew. I think from that that point, like it was an eventuality. Was that your first startup? My first startup. Yeah. yeah. It's only my. This is only my third job ever in life. So now would be a great time for you to introduce yourself. So uh, I know you quite well. Uh, I'm John Cotemol. I'm uh, Edith's co-founder and CTO of LaunchDarkly. So I already have so many questions already, such as like this is only your third job. You never. I mean, you graded in college. Oh, okay. I suppose that's true. I, I graded for uh, CS80 at Harvey Mudd. That's uh, logic. So I, I spent two hours a week grading <laughs> homework assignments. And when you were getting your PhD? I was just poor. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I got a PhD in um, computer science, much like Paul. You just get paid very poorly for like a number of years. So I had a stipend. So I guess theoretically, as a grad student, it's like you're both an employee and a student. But like literally, I was in the Bay Area earning like twenty k a year for six wow. years. So yeah, it's not fun. Were you a TA? I thought you you can teach, but so like I, I taught for like one semester, right? And then basically the way it works out is like that happens instead of your stipend, so you don't get paid more for teaching. Oh. It's just something you have to do. It's crazy when you go to your first job afterwards, and like suddenly you've seven times as much money. Yeah. Why I, doesn't everyone drop out immediately and get a job that pays seven times as much money? Uh, because if you don't stay for the PhD, you'll, you'll only get a job that makes five times as much money. Yeah. And then you can walk around and like people call you doctor. Do, do you actually use doctor? 
I tried to once and it didn't go over well. Like they asked me, like I was at a bank and my, my credit card says doctor. Yeah, I had that one, so that was super awkward. Yeah, they're like, doctor, what, what kind of physician are you? And I'm like, <laughs> computers. Computers? And they were like extraordinarily disappointed. <laughs> they like try to tr- did they try to show you a word or something? Yeah, after that point, I was like, no. Showed you a bug in their software. They're like, can you, can you fix this? <laughs> yeah, it's like, it looks like a buffer overflow. <laughs> Which is funny because your wife is actually a medical doctor. She is. Yeah, she's uh, she's an ophthalmologist. She has like the same sort of insecurities around her title as me. It's like I'm a doctor of something useless, but she also gets confused uh, with optometrists. So optometrists are different from ophthalmologists. Ophthalmologists are like medical doctors and surgeons, but if she tells people she's an ophthalmologist, a lot of them think she's an optometrist, and they think she like you know does the cover your eye and read the big E thing. You know what's in they both have in common is that nobody can spell them. It's true. So Ellen, so you had this first reality world startup and then you decided to do another one. There was more in between the two. So I had the first reality world startup and I learned many things I was bad at. And then I decided to go learn a bunch about all of them and eventually it would be the right time to do another one. But I didn't want to do it before I felt like I knew the right set of things. How did Paul persuade you? I think Paul happened to meet me at the exact moment where I knew I was ready because the job I had before this, I'd been in EIR in an incubator and I'd started working on a project and then eventually we ended up, the incubator went away, we kicked out of the companies we'd invested in, we canceled all the other internal projects and started building it. So I'd just been through this experience of seeing a team scale from just me to 50 people and go from basically where we were at at the beginning, which was it was a project within an incubator to a Series B stage company. And so I'd kind of just seen the entire process and it felt like there were no excuses not to do it anymore. If there was time to do it, it was now. It was good timing on my part. Did you have hesitations given the way the stuff had gone south before? No. There were 15 minutes where Paul walked me through a lot of slides about accidental complexity. And I was like, yeah, that seems like a problem. And there were like a couple slides in the middle where I was like, mm, I don't think this is going to work. And then about 20 minutes later, I was like, oh no, this is definitely going to work. Yeah, we should do this. But it was very much a within the first half hour decision. Yeah, so John, it took us like 10 years. Yeah, we weren't even sure what the idea was for a while. You were doing consumer stuff or consumer ideas before you decided to launch Starkly? We we had a joke that we should make a like a graveyard of all our ideas that we tried mm-hmm. for about a day. Oh, there was there was the static analysis startup. I don't know. Oh yeah, that would have been good. Yeah, it would have been really good. Did you have a process for how you tested all of the ideas or was it just every day something new? Mostly we convinced ourselves that they were terrible ideas as quickly as we could. And they took a day. The terrible ones would take like an hour. Yeah, the static analysis one, we we worked for six or eight weeks on it, maybe even longer. Oh, shit. Than no, that. like eight eight months. Oh, eight months. <laughs> that was a long time. It flew by so fast. Oh, wow. I was having so much. What, fun. what was it going to be? So uh, I had this observation that you know, like DVCS and Git and the way people do development doesn't work really well with most static analysis tools because they're not like built to be incremental mm-hmm. in any way. And so, like the thing that static analysis doesn't have is any notion of time, like how the code base is changing over time. So I had this observation that if you married the types of static analyses that map easily to graph reachability problems mm-hmm. to like Git metadata, and you layered Git metadata on top of that static analysis data, you could basically use like data log as a query engine to ask questions about code base and static analysis questions that married like time and commit history with the facts that you were interested in. So like it would be incremental by design. So mm-hmm. like when you made an incremental change, it would you would just rederive the necessary facts based on that change. So it'd be much faster. 
And you could do things with like temporal understanding. So did you come to the conclusion that this was a terrible idea or no market or like how did it, how did it go from like oh, that sounds pretty interesting? Because we were, we worked on it for a solid year. We worked on it for a while. Uh, this is so when I look at dates. This, this is ramping up for six weeks and eight months. Now it's a year. <laughs> we spent like fifteen <laughs> we years spent a on decade. this. Well, no. this is this is developer estimation versus. It was, it was a combination of two things. Um, the first and most important thing was I think Edith was talking about the idea with a bunch of prospective customers. And the level of excitement we were hearing was not was not that great. There were a lot of attempts to commercialize static analysis, like yeah. you know, right around when I was finishing grad school, and they, you know, they all ran into that sort of like hair on fire. Well, you problem. worked at Coverity, right? I worked at Coverity for yeah. three years. So yeah, that one got commercialized and got an exit, and yeah, it, yeah. it exited. Uh, did a really good exit. It was a great company, some amazing technology, but I think a lot of the stuff. That they were doing, it, it was really applicable to like legacy code bases or like mm-hmm. a lot of like embedded systems and stuff like that. And then like modern software development, like modern you know web software development, say as a, a as a subclass in there, a lot of the techniques there weren't interesting, and Coverity as a tool wasn't interesting for them. So okay, so you just talked to all the people, and then and I got kind of a begrudging like, hey, maybe I'll look at that as a favor to you. So what was the process of going from that to like we're not going to do this anymore? It was a combination of that, plus I realized at some point I'd spent nine years of my career working on this stuff and I was done. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it was just too much. I, I knew how far the rabbit hole went and I, wanted, I desperately wanted to get out of that rabbit hole. So at this point, was it just the two of you, just working on ideas together and trying to figure out what to start? Yeah, and there's a bunch of code that I wrote. Like there, There's a prototype of like an analysis system and... like. Um, Did you release it? Open source it? No, I really should. It's like something I've been meaning to circle back to because I used some of like the, I did like a prototype analysis, which was like a clone detector Mm -hmm. um, based on like some interesting research that had come out of Davis, and it was like really good actually. It it worked really well. There there was a lot of stuff there that would have been interesting, but like taking that sort of like interesting research idea and turning it into a real product Mm -hmm. was a lot of work. Like that was that last mile problem in static analysis, going from like. Here's an interesting research problem. To here's like a polished commercial product that a company can use on mm-hmm. their code base and derive value out of. That's like a huge leap. That was something we learned at Coverity and something that I like rediscovered in this process. So like those two things together, it was more than enough information to let us know that we needed to work on if, something. If you else. have to answer why are we making our own language, Ellen, this this is the thing. Are you really making your own language? Yes, we are. But the reason is, if we don't make our own language, then we have to deal with someone else's. I don't think that's the only reason. It's not the only reason, but like there's is it like just the, 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 I thought, the fear I thought the reason I was that Paul likes languages. No, no. It's, it's it's just it's easier to to build a new language that is designed for exactly what you want than to try and, and prove properties about someone else's language. I think the other interesting thing is another reason that it's hard to commercialize a lot of the research that I did is like it's much easier for people to adopt new languages now. Like I think the thesis when I was in grad school was like, oh, it takes like thirty years for a language to hit mainstream, and then you saw Java, where I think the increment was like maybe ten years or something like that. Mm-hmm. I might have my history a little bit wrong on that, but then new languages like Go, like right, right, all right. of LaunchDarkly is written in Go, and you know Go is not that old a language. So, so John, was it hard to give up the idea? I mean, this was your research. This is something you you spent a lot of time on. You know, I think I still think it's like it's an interesting idea, like the specific approach we were taking to it, and I hope that somebody like pursues it because I think software development ultimately would be better off if we had that kind of information, like the the kind of thing we I had envisioned. But it was easy to get rid of it as an idea because 
going down those like familiar paths of like writing those parts of analyses that I'd, I'd done before at Coverity and in my thesis work, I was like, there was too much familiarity with it. And I really wanted to do something new and different. I thought it would be a harder conversation when we had that conversation because it was like, hey, maybe we should push a couple more months and see if we can productize this. I don't want to give up too soon. And you said that. I remember it because I was like, I don't want to, you know, we've put so much work on, I don't want to give it up too easily. Like, let's make sure we're on board with giving it up. Do you remember that? We were. Yeah, and actually, like, that was right around when I left my company. And it was really hard because we went from, like, I went for about, I guess it was about a year. I'd forgotten the timing of it, but I went for about a year knowing I was going to leave my last company and feeling like we had something that I was anchored to that we were going to work on together and that was going to be the thing. And then I knew I was going to leave. I put my notice in and and we kind of made this decision to pivot and do something else and we were going to scrap that code base and there was a like it was a little bit hard because I was leaving and I was like I couldn't really articulate what I was going to work on next because mm. I didn't have a concrete idea. So it felt even riskier to be leaving a good situation. What did you tell people? Oh, I had all sorts of harebrained <laughs> ideas. I, I think I told people that I was working on a VR-related idea, <laughs> which I wasn't. It's interesting the the thing of like not wanting to do what you've done for so long. I feel once I'm done with something, like I'm done. I'm not not going back to it. Yeah, and like I think you were saying the same thing about the travel startups. Yeah. I do not want to do any more travel startups. Me neither. I always that trip it for a long time. Oh, that's that's so funny. Like yeah, this yeah, yeah. two static analysis, analysis founders yeah, and two it, travel it, founders. The, I never put that way, together. My, my middle name is Ellen. Oh. I did not know that. My middle name is Paul. And many people in this room are wearing Launch Darkly shirts. Many. Nearly all. And Paul looks lovely on you. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it always does. So Ellen, was it? did you have to make a similar leap of faith to join Paul? or? Yeah, actually. So I don't think I could have picked worse timing to have a startup. At the point in time when I met Paul, actually a mutual friend had emailed me saying Paul was looking for a co-founder, and I said not to introduce me because I was afraid I would want to do it. <laughs> and my husband and I had just bought a house in Boston, and I had this company, and I like just built this team I was very proud of, and we just raised a bunch of money, and and I was getting married in August, and I think there were some other things going on. It just was like not great. But I think when I looked at it, I said, oh, this is exactly what I wanted to do in three years. I don't have to wait for three years. I can just do it right now. And that seems like the better answer. Yeah, I think we did the reverse. We just kept postponing and postponing it. Well, then, and then we ended up picking like kind of a similarly bad set of timing. Like I just had a kid and left a comfortable situation. I think, you know, when it's the right time, it just feels like the right time, regardless of like, how I mean, it might seem external. Your wife's a doctor. I feel you're you're going to be okay. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, the way I did it, like I think it was more slippery slope, where I was like, I will regret it forever if I don't do this. Probably it won't work. How can I like do the things to make it fall apart the fastest? And so Paul and I met on a Friday, and by the next Friday, you had already flown to Boston, and we're yeah, like yeah, living yeah, in yeah. my house, and we didn't know each other at all. Did he bring his launch darkly shirts though? He did. <laughs> yeah, like the the first day we hung out for I think five hours. And like that was that was a lot. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I I had gone through this process with a bunch of people before, and I had not got like to the point of like five hours with someone actually feels like a like a pretty good uh, experience. Yeah, I guess we were the reverse. We just kept postponing and postponing it. Some of it was me, and some of it was you. Yeah, because we were both like in relatively comfortable situations in a lot of ways. If you hadn't postponed it, would you have come up with future flags? I don't know. It feels like feature flags were not not new, but like starting to catch on around the time that you started building. I think if we'd come earlier, it would have been too soon, for yeah, sure. That, that, for for the way that, we built I mean. it, yeah. 
Like I think if we'd started the company five years earlier, oh, people were still shifting to the cloud at that point. Yeah, I think we probably would have had to build a completely different product that was like not SaaS focused. Yeah, yeah. Like probably like an open source play or something like that. You probably wouldn't have realized that feature flags was the thing to build either. No, absolutely not. Uh, yeah, it took us. It was kind of like the experiences that Edith and I had both had at the the size organizations that we had that drove us to realize like mm-hmm. where the need was. And so without that experience, I don't think we would have built as good of a product as we we built. You'd probably have tried to build CI as a service. It was, <laughs> it was very popular in 2012. It's it's funny because we knew we wanted to start a company and we would always be bouncing ideas off each other. Mm-hmm. And I would say all I really know how to is to build software. I'm like, I don't have any deep domain expertise in um, mm-hmm. I don't know, autonomous vehicles. And Something then it, about plants, right? I was at a plant company, but that was a bad one. <laughs> but then it turned out that like knowing a lot about software was actually really valuable. Yeah, because like that. Not only do I only really know about software, I only know about how to build software for other software developers. Edith, did you talk to any other potential co-founders? Did you? No. Ever ever think about? I didn't something? either. How did you know you wanted to start a company together? I was just like John would be awesome. How, how many years did you know each other by that point? Like a long time. Right, like ten. Ish. Ish. Yeah, okay. Well, we had briefly that other guy who I won't name, but like. We thought about bringing a third person in around like a specific idea we had. He was like a really brilliant person, but like at the end of the day, he wasn't invested in the same way that we were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess like I didn't talk to anybody else either. It's yeah. Weird because you, I know that Paul, you interviewed probably 50 people? Uh, 49 people. Were you literally the 50th person, Ellen? Or maybe the 49th, I'm not sure. We can look at the spreadsheet. See, I had the opposite where like I'd been working with a lot of people for a long time and I could never find enough conviction to start a company with any of them or any of the people I met socially who I knew who started things. And I had come to a conclusion of basically the shape of the person I wanted to work with and what I wanted them to be good at or not good at. And so then I could pattern match that pretty quickly where you had the pattern from having talked to 49 people mm. and I had it from knowing a lot of people. And well, I first went through fit. the people I knew. And like, I mean, some of them were in the, in the 49, but like, Realized that either there wasn't anyone who was ready to go now, or there wasn't anyone who was the right fit. Yeah, I didn't talk to anybody else. I mean, that's the way you're supposed to do it, right? Yeah, you're, you're supposed to like have someone that you've known all your life, and that they're the perfect co-founder for you. I think Edith is like probably the only person that really believed in me as a potential co-founder. Well, so. of course, you were perfect. Well, thank you. Oh, you guys! But, like you have to understand no, that that like, was. Like, I had this deep conviction. I'm like John is the guy. Well, you were the person with that deep conviction, so that's why we're here. I, I was like, I will pry him out of his company, and he will come do this. Mm-hmm. So, did, did it take much convincing? No, not really. Um, uh. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> I mean, it, t- it sounds like you were coding on this idea part time while you still worked. Yeah. So, like, you didn't. You didn't like. You know, quit everything and, and start doing it by any means. Yeah, there were there were timing reasons for that. Like, I think there was a conviction that we, that I was going to leave. Like, I think when I talked to some of the people that Edith talked to um, afterwards, I, I realized that she was worried that I wasn't going to leave. But there was never any point where I wasn't going to leave. I was going to leave as soon as we we actually like incorporated a little bit earlier, like before we really started working on anything. And I, like when we signed the incorporation paperwork, I I knew I was done. Like mm-hmm. I was going to leave, and the timing was just around like. Like other external factors and stuff like that. Yeah, like he just had a baby, so I didn't want him to like. I wanted the baby to be at least like six or nine months old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is really good because like having a two-month-old in a startup is like <laughs> yeah. it's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's not fun. I like the the other the other thing the the thing with the process where you find the ideal person because you you do find the ideal person that way. Well, I think most people don't. So. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there's a compliment in there somewhere. So, what has it been 
since so you've been working together for six months now? A little over. So what's funny is even after John and I started the company and we known each other for decades, mm-hmm. we kept this running quip document of like stuff we didn't know about each other. Oh, oh we, really we, we just we just found out some stuff ourselves. Like just funniest stuff that like you know This seems like a really good venue for the two of you to share some of those things. Yeah. Uh, my one that, that that we just discovered this afternoon or that she didn't know is that you know on a, on a scale of one to ten, I, I basically live between four and seven. I, I never hit ten, but I never go below a four either. And I'm generally just like sitting in a sort of a five or a six, just generally content. Sometimes you seem really morose. Uh, it's probably a four. I learned that I'd been interpreting the four as a one and vastly overreacting. Sometimes you seem really down, Paul. Yeah, it's it, that's a four. I've never seen a seven. Yeah, seven. no, it's, 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 sevens aren't around that much. I'm usually at, at like a five or a six. Term sheet arriving. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good one. Is yeah. it true that you were in the commitments? Uh yes. <laughs> I wasn't sure. Is this just an Irish cliche? Uh no no. So that that picture that is this thing Ian tweeted. Yeah. Yeah. So that that was actually me. At, at seven years old. Oh, and and here you are slumming it as a as a as a developer when you you're yeah a movie star. I, I know my my eighty three pounds went exceptionally far. How did you end up in the commitments? Oh, that's eighty three pounds. That was what I was paid for the thing because we used pounds in in Ireland back in those days. Sorry, what was that? How, how how did I end up there? Uh, my drama teacher, I think she was married to the casting person for for the movie. And obviously, it was filmed around, and they needed people for like, we were uh, me and this other guy were going to be page boys, and then they cut the wedding scene, so they just like threw us into some other stuff. You should put that in your LinkedIn profile. Uh yeah, star of the commitments. That that would be good. It was on Reading Rainbow, which is an American TV show. What were you doing on it? I was talking about my idea of a perfect person. What was a perfect person? I said it was something that could eat a taco without spilling anything. John, yes. obviously the question here, can you eat a taco without spilling anything? Not even close. Oh. No. Mm-hmm. Actually, no, that wasn't what I said. It was what my friend Ian said. And I found it more memorable than what I actually said. So, But somewhere there's a video clip of me. Do you know what Reading Rainbow is? Yes. LeVar Burton visited yeah, Kickstarter yeah. when I worked there. It was yeah. great. Do you know what it is? Uh, vaguely. Well, John, explain what Reading Rainbow is. That's a kid show, LeVar Burton. That's great. There's like a catchphrase that, did you wear his visor? No, it's it like pre, yeah, it was pre, oh, pre, pre oh, Jordi LaForge. But I think that, yeah, I think it was uh, pretty popular when we were younger. I actually didn't know that you were on Reading Rainbow. I was just, I was around seven or eight. But what else went in the spreadsheet? What else do you know about each other that that you did not before? Allergic. Oh yeah, I'm highly allergic to everything. Hmm. Like this started in my like my mid twenties or so. Like I was not highly allergic to anything, and now I'm like highly allergic to many things. That he actually got a de- started a degree in design. Uh, well, human computer interaction. Yeah. yeah. So I, I was I, I was a PhD student. I when I when I went to Berkeley first, I was in human computer interaction, and then mm-hmm. I shifted over to PLs after that. Um, so I spent like two years doing HDI stuff. It's really hard, actually. Uh, I think a lot of people have this like mis- misconception that like HDI is like the softer yeah, side yeah. of CS, but it's it's incredibly difficult, incredibly hard work. John also has a minor in statistics. Hmm. Yep, you had to do a lot of coursework at Berkeley for the PhD. Um, so I ended up having to take like a bunch of like grad level statistics and math, and that's where I learned that CS is very easy compared to math, like especially grad level math. Well, it's interesting because all of the PL papers, th- there's no statistical vigor at all. 
None. There's like the, the, we we put an average. We we put on a graph. We're done. Yeah. That's yeah, because when when people like you and I go into like those actual math classes, they get blown out of the water yeah. by like <laughs> really good <laughs> mathematicians. Yeah. Well, this was handy because like um, I I actually didn't know that he'd gotten this minor in statistics until we're starting launch darkly, mm. and there starts to be more more harder math with like bucketing and like putting mm-hmm. people. And he's like, I got this. Hmm. I'm like, you got this? And he's like, Yeah, I, I got this minor in statistics. I'm like, That's pretty cool. Mm. I, I keep forgetting that uh, Ellen went to HBS, and so like we were. We were looking at some finances. I don't remember. Oh, it was, it was the four nine A, and I was like explaining what I had done from the from my previous four nine As, and she's like, "No, no, I've, I've, <laughs> I, 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 I know, I, I know how to drive this model from scratch. It's okay." <laughs> I believe it was. This is how you do a discounted cash flow, or like this is why there is a discounted cash flow. And right. I was like, "Yes, we can make one right now." It's <laughs> like, so, ooh, I, yeah, do I, don't, I don't understand what any of those words mean. Like that's. I, like, I didn't understand what any of the static like, analysis was. You so just wear your pants. It'll be fine. Yeah. I did have a moment at HBS where they decided one year that every single HBS student should have to start a startup as a class in groups of five. Which I feel does not model proper co-founder behavior, but fine. But I ended up having to pitch this fake startup with five people on stage to a thousand people, and I unintentionally made a joke, and the laughter spread throughout the audience. And by the point at which I realized everyone was laughing, I was talking about unit economics, and I had no idea why they were laughing. And the only thing I could think to do was to look down and see if I was still wearing pants. <laughs> and I was like, "Well, I'm still wearing pants. I'm just going to keep talking about unit economics, and maybe they'll stop laughing soon." What and was, it worked out. What was the joke? Um, the startup was an on-demand photography startup, and I was trying to draw to the distinction of you wouldn't use it to hire a wedding photographer. You would use it in the event that you had just been engaged, and you were having your first engagement party, as in the party like the Sunday after you got engaged on Friday night, which I think there must have been people who were on engagements that were not the first, and it was interpreted as, oh, you use this the first time you get engaged, oh. not the third uh. and fourth. Yeah. But it just took a very long time because it probably started with one person who had been in this situation. And it turns out unit economics are not very funny. I, I think they, they're extremely fascinating, though. Fascinating, yes. Worthy of a thousand people laughing at you on stage, no. Well, it depends on the conference. You just, why, why did you decide to do a startup? I think it was the same reason I was, I rode my bike across country or I was an engineer, I ran 100 miles. I just had this burning desire that I wanted to do it. Even when I was in college, I wanted to do it. I had other friends who had done startups, like the DreamHost people. I remember them mm. buying their first servers, like them going to Fry's and mm. coming back with a server. I was sitting in the courtyard at, at Mud. I just never felt like I knew enough, but I always wanted to do it. It took me a while to, as John said, to take this leap. I remember it was really hard. Like one of the reasons we postponed was I pushed it a couple times. I would be like, mm. oh, you know, want to learn another thing. Maybe I should get another job to learn this thing. Yeah, I think we ended up starting it at the logical time. Like there wasn't really any reason to postpone anymore. If we postponed again, it would have been like another couple of years at that point. Yeah, what if we had done it two years earlier? Would that have just been too soon? Probably. Yeah, I think I think for future flags or for yourselves, both. I don't know. I know I felt completely green. I felt like I knew a lot about some things and other things like. Like we would literally be googling how to incorporate and like trying. We did our clerky paperwork. We were both like, "Is this mm-hmm. the right way to do it?" I don't know. Yeah, I think I think it was the right time for me. Like I, in my last couple of years at Atlassian, I was still learning a ton of stuff. And I think it was all stuff that became really valuable for LaunchDarkly later. So I, I think the timing was right then. Like I think if I left two years earlier, there 
there were things that I learned in those two years that, that I, would, I definitely needed. It was scary to go without a salary. I remember I was talking to Will, who was actually our first angel, and I kept wanting him to fund us before we left. Because mm-hmm. and he basically told me in very nice words. Because Will is, did you ever meet Will Eldritch? Uh, yeah, one of the nicest They're guys. Very nice guy. But he's like, he told me very nicely, like, no, you have to quit. Because <laughs> I was like, can't you give us some money so we could quit? And he's like, no. I think uh, when we were at Alchemist, when we were in our interview for Alchemist, I think one of the things that really helped was. I think we said it was like the day after my last day at Atlassian. We we were actually so I left Atlassian. I, my last day there was like you know a farewell thing, and then I got a text from Edith saying that we had a meeting with Alchemist Accelerator like the next day, and like that ended up going well. So we went like one day from we, me leaving Atlassian to getting at least some funding. Yeah, so we'd gotten turned down by YCN five hundred. And then I'd had an uh, old coworker who'd gone through Alchemist, this other accelerator, and he's mm-hmm. like, oh, you should apply. And we applied, and we didn't hear back, and I was just like, oh, yeah, another rejection. Mm-hmm. And the best thing that could have happened was the, the, the organizer, Robbie, called me. He's like, why haven't you responded to my emails? I'm like, what emails? Mm. And they had written us, offering us an interview. And I know this now, Robbie sends out like floods of emails, and it had gone to my spam folder. Uh-huh. Oh. Like and knowing Robbie now, I'm like, oh, of course I went to spam. And so I'm like, John, I know that you probably want to like hang out with all your friends and like have a good time tonight. But we got an interview at 10 a.m. tomorrow at DFJ, and he's like, really? What was your reaction? Uh, I was a little bit surprised, and yeah, I was really kind of looking forward to enjoying myself. On, I mean, I'd, I'd been at Atlassian for six years, so like leaving was kind of a big deal, and uh, saying farewell to the team. With libations mm-hmm. was uh, was one of the things I was looking forward to doing. So and I was like, ten a.m. Sand Hill Road, we got to be there. And he's like, "Was that at DFJ?" Yeah, it was. Wow, full circle. Yeah, I know. That's why it's weird when I it was our first meeting ever on Sand Hill Road was our accelerator. Was your leaving like that, or were they sad to see you go? Was it hard? I actually so prior to this, I worked for Paul English in my last company, and he handled that departure better than I've ever seen anyone handle a departure. So it went from immediately, it wasn't about the company, it was immediately about me and what I was trying to do and how he could help, which was, I'll make introductions, I'll invest, like I want to see your deck, like let's talk about the idea, I'm super excited, I want to meet your co-founder, I want to do all this stuff. And then about halfway through the conversation, he shifted back to, I'm sad you're leaving, I've really enjoyed working with you, but he handled it in this way that was better than anything I could have asked for or expected. I think that's what I try to do. Like We had a, a guy like very much who, who quit to go to get his MBA, I was like, I'm happy for you. Mm-hmm. This is a good opportunity. We'll miss you, but like, you, you know, I know that the valley, or the world is small, mm-hmm. and people remember departures. But you were happy for someone to go get an MBA. I feel like normally everyone's so upset about it. Oh, uh, why would people we be upset? Failed another one. When I did it, everyone was like, "You're ruining your life. You'll be two years behind. This is terrible. Why would you ever do it? It was not done. Really, even at Harvard? Yeah. Why? Wait, I, I thought Harvard was like the golden palace. I mean, it was certainly interesting. Yeah, I think people just don't place much value in management. Like when you think about how many people say they don't want to have one-on-ones because it's a waste of time. What? I've talked to so many founders who don't want to do any management practice, what? don't want to have any process, don't want to have anything to do with any of that, and I find it baffling. Like just because you want to do it differently doesn't mean you have to throw out everything that anyone else ever thought of. That's funny because we were just talking on the way over like we believe very strongly in not management with a capital M but just like good management. Like a little bit of process, not too much. So we sent our engineers to Deering's course, and why why did you encourage them to do that? Well, Deering's course is, is 
that that thing is really good. Um, this is the general general management. management. Yeah, I want, yeah, I want to do that. Yeah, you know, I think I think when when you first hear the idea of like, oh, you're going to take a, a management training course, like a three day management training course, you're like, oh my god, like what level of bullshit am I in for? But Deering's course is actually really good. Like, there's stuff I learned in that class that. Like when I'm mani- when I'm doing well as a manager, it's because I'm like introspecting and looking back at some of the things that I learned there. You know, there's a lot of like years of experience you could have as a manager that get distilled down to like things that you learn in those in, the, in those three days. I don't know. I thought it was really valuable, and I think it's something we're encouraging all of our people leaders to to do. I think that you have a process whether you acknowledge it or not, and like you can either say, "Hey, we have a process that some things are working, these other things we're tweaking," but like. Let's acknowledge this, mm-hmm. or you have an awful process that you don't even acknowledge how awful it is. When if you don't acknowledge it, people don't know how to fix it. Yeah, because they don't know what to say is wrong. They just know it's wrong somehow. Yeah, I, I think that there's, and and this comes from someone who who had a startup with no process. Well, you uh, had a process. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. but your, your process what, was just what you were saying, uh, Alan, about like throwing it all out. Like that, that was sort of deliberately the point. We we wanted to sort of start from nothing and do the things that were necessary as we came across them. And I, I think that there's something to that, but it just it just doesn't work out. You, you end up just doing nothing and then like getting yeah. trapped on, under the weight of what you don't do. I mean, it turns out like after millennia, people have gotten like right. really good at managing people, and companies have gotten really like there's actually lessons that you. But can there's learn. also like, a huge amount of people who are terrible at managing. Yes, and so like we we all have those those sort of anti patterns that we're trying to avoid, and and may, may, maybe in in our case, I think we we throw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah, because it's all about like kind of standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Like having the experience base, maybe even being at some of those companies and like seeing what worked well mm-hmm. and what didn't, and being able to throw out the things that didn't work well. I think that requires having worked at companies where it worked well, and I think we didn't have experiences where we could point to this worked really well. Yeah, I can see that. Like, I mean, like Atlassian, for example, where I came from, it's extraordinary. Like it's a really well-run company. There's so many lessons to be learned from from there. They're really good. And like I've been from, like I said, I've got three jobs, mm-hmm. right? I had that experience, and then I had um, Coverity, which had a, a bunch of you know other different challenges where things weren't working so well. Mm-hmm. I would view Coverity as like sort of like more like the norm in terms of like how a lot of startups are run, mm-hmm. and Atlassian being like this kind of exceptional outlier. And like seeing seeing those two things and having those be my own only two data points was kind of interesting. I think there's a a lot of the people who are throwing out all this stuff are sort of like younger and yeah. like you know you, you do startups younger now and so you you know people come right from college and they haven't worked at a place that that is really functional. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is like especially for engineers the influence is open source which is this massively dysfunctional sort of environment. And so you take the open source policies and I. I Put a sort of inverted commas around that, uh, and and then you apply that to like that's the way it's supposed to be, and then you end up surprise surprise in a dysfunctional land. Yeah, how do you feel that Harvard Business School has helped you or not helped you with the actual startup? Because I'd always kind of wished I would get an MBA, it just never worked out. Yeah, so I think the most interesting thing about it, it's still one of the hardest things I've done. So at HBS, the way it works is you're in a classroom with ninety people and you read a packet story. You're supposed to analyze the solution. And be able to speak on it on any particular piece of data or on any opinion of what happened in that story at any moment, unexpectedly. And so you're basically walking into a room of 90 people every day, knowing you have to have 10 seconds of great content on something, and you just don't know what those 10 seconds are and when they're going to fit into the conversation or if they'll even happen. Much like a podcast. Much like a podcast, except 
you don't get a chance to talk again later or edit or anything, and you're graded on 10 of those 10-second chunks. Wow. And so it's super high pressure. And like in contrast to something like fundraising, fundraising is high pressure because you need the money to keep your company alive. Mm-hmm. But you're telling a story you know and believe in. Mm-hmm. You're not trying to pick 10 arbitrary seconds that make you sound really smart. Mm. And so I think the pressure of being on the spot for like three to five hours every single day to sound good at any moment builds a lot of emotional resilience. Yeah. Something I struggle with with fundraising, and John, I was a terrible fundraiser when I started. I, I didn't know how to distill the story at all. Mm-hmm. Like, I would just kind of start with like things that were true. Like, me and my friend want to start a company. We tried other ideas. <laughs> now we're doing this. I would fund that. No. I, I remember one piece of feedback, which was you were talking about failed deploys and stuff like that. I think you said something like, I've worked on a lot of products that have just utterly failed. (laughs) (laughs) This particular investor was like, I don't think people really want to hear that you're a failure. (laughs) Well, so I I would say, so I I got better. Like at the beginning, I was just really bad because I was just like, the word I heard once was word vomit. Mm. Yeah, HBS, you cannot word vomit because they'll cut you off. So you get good at being concise and thinking on your feet. So do you feel like it helped you with? Just being more able to think on your feet and react, or it definitely helped with that. It also helped with because you read so many stories over time, you have a lot of examples to draw from. So you can always almost come up with like analogy or parallel, or give yourself a new framework to think through a situation. So it's no longer you're in this situation where I made this thing, I have to solve this problem as it came up. Every time you end up in one of those, you have five good examples of other ways people have solved the problem. Yeah, I think that was the point I was trying to make about all these failed projects. Is like I have all these things of like this toolbox of like, okay, I tried this and this. I could reuse that template in a different way, but it certainly didn't come across that mm-hmm. way. But, uh, yeah, that's like too nuanced of a position for like a, a two-minute pitch. Yeah, in my mind, I'm like, okay, we tried this playbook. Here's how we could have tweaked it. Like, let's do this. Like, our content strategy is very successful because I took playbooks, but it was a terrible mm-hmm. way to pitch. The first time I tried to pitch in in Silicon Valley, I tried to do it the Irish way, <laughs> which is uh, you you have you have conversations with people and you, you talk about anything other than the actual thing, and then at the end, you're like, oh yes, I'm doing this thing. Um, so you just kind of like slide across a note at the end. Yeah, or, or you know, set, set up another meeting afterwards. And, and at that meeting, you might spend quite a considerable amount of time just small talking as well. But the I realized that that, that the way I was I was pitching it was like this sort of you know sort of self deprecating because in in R&D you don't talk things up. So you're like I was talking to these investors, and this was in you know, YC demo day. And I'm like, you know, this this idea, it's 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 a pretty good idea. Most startups fail. This prop one probably will too. But you know, the the idea itself is it's 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 quite reasonable. And then <laughs> I got this horse to sell you. <laughs> and it's the, it's and an then, okay horse. <laughs> and then literally next to me, there was another guy in my batch, and he's saying, "This is going to be a billion dollar company." And in retrospect, I was like, "Oh yeah, that that's how you do it." But like at the time, I was thinking like, "No, it's not." <laughs> And it's like I, I I could never sell that. Like, would that that'd be ridiculous? The chances of this being a one billion dollar company are, are minimal. Like, uh, and then when I actually learned how to fundraise, it was like focus on the things you actually believe, and the, you know don't don't talk yourself down and, and and that kind of thing. But it's it doesn't necessarily come naturally for a lot of people. Yeah, it didn't for us. It took a lot of practice. Yeah, I think for engineers too, it's like it's pretty yeah, hard yeah. because like you want to be like extremely factual, right? You want to be like driven by metrics. Explaining like you're very like focused on like you know how the world is today and like what the state of affairs is today, sort of. And I, I don't think that that works really well when you're when you're pitching. And also like that that sort of like humbleness around 
like the things that you built so far and like all the things that you need to do to get to where you need to go in terms of like building new things or whatever like none of that plays very well when you're pitching mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's funny um so somebody uses me now as a, us as an example because we had a, somebody who we talked to like three weeks after we started full time and in hindsight we pitched him terribly like and he didn't invest and now we're we're, we're pretty moderate decent success and every time I see him he's just like well, I, f- I feel this is true of of all the investors that you talked to at the start. Like they always get the worst version of you, the least refined. The you green. don't have messaging. You don't have positioning. You don't know what works. You haven't like A/B tested your way through a hundred investors. It's like they're obviously going to say no. Yeah. And almost everyone I've seen, and this is certainly true of me, it's like at the start you get a ton of no's, and then you get one yes, and then a few more no's, and then another yes, and you start to get it right, and then all of a sudden like something turns, and and they're all yeses from there. But the people. Who really like did you a solid were the people who listened to you when you were sounded like a fucking idiot, but they didn't get to invest. the The guys who like saw you later and like, huh, these guys are amazing. Like they, those people get to invest. Oh yeah, so, but legitimately, everyone always says that, and I always felt like the first ones would go really badly, and then I, we got a term sheet when I walked out of the first one I'd ever done. They knew you for years. True. But just saying, <laughs> I don't think you should be like, the first one's going to go terribly. I think you should walk in and be like, I want a term sheet walking out of the first one. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I actually talked to a bunch of people who I felt were, were going to not invest before I talked to the list of investors that I already knew that I felt would invest. Because I, want, I wanted to get the bad ones out on, on people who probably weren't going to give me money anyway. I think also to 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 be honest, Ellen. I mean, you have a deep track record in startups, whereas John had been to like he'd been at two companies. I had been more on the product inch side, so I just I didn't know anybody, and and mm-hmm. I didn't know any single investor, like literally none. Like this last fundraise is not an example of how one fundraises. This oh no, is a, this, this is a very, very unusual circumstance. <laughs> yeah, like when I started, like my old boss, I asked him for advice. One of the founders of TripIt, he was like, "Oh, just call up your associate friends." You know, from business school, and have them go pitch them for practice. <laughs> that's what I did. I guess that's why I was comfortable going in and doing one. Was I called all my friends first? Yeah, you're, 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 and like John and I went to 128 person school. All engineers. Engineers, CS, bio. I like that. It's 128. Nice, oh, nice round number. We all went to tiny. Well, yours was yeah. probably bigger. Mine but, was 80 people. Yeah, but I didn't yeah. know a single associate. Yeah, like none. Like we didn't, we didn't have anybody who like we 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 pitched John's brother. Yeah, he was he was not insightful. <laughs> well, that was awesome the guy, but he's a real estate lawyer. <laughs> that was literally like, I was like, John, we got to practice on somebody. Yeah, and he he thought we were a horror show. <laughs> How many investors did you talk to in your in your seed round? Probably all told, I have a spreadsheet somewhere forty to fifty. Forty to fifty. Yeah. I remember reading someone's um, you know we we failed startup post where where they had raised a very small thing and then they went to raise something else and like they they talked to sixty five people and they. They didn't get it going, and they felt like they were done. And I was like, "Holy shit! Like, sixty-five is not like how many did we? One hundred and forty? Yeah, yeah. I will say that as much as I can say, oh, the first one went really well. It set things up to feel really badly after that. <laughs> oh, what happened yeah. after that? Then there was a lot of no. So one is is we're we're doing this like incredibly ambitious thing. So lots of people felt this isn't going to work. And then also we may have priced it a little high. <laughs> a little, a little too high, uh, and so it took us longer to to get to that finished. What what can't be going through 140? I mean, that's a lot. There was progress along the way. 
Yeah, I think it wasn't quite that many. It was a lot of people, It though. was 140. I think it was also that I was learning every single time we pitched because I hadn't worked in this space before. So whatever the questions were that anyone would ask, even if they were VC questions or they were from people who hadn't worked in the field, I would just write them all down and then I would go home and then I would learn that set of things. So it was basically free education about the market and the space that gave me more perspectives besides Paul's. Probably useful to have more perspectives besides Paul's. No, you're always right. <laughs> How did you guys split up the pitch between the two of you? Well, so one, one thing that I learned during the pitch is, is apparently I like to talk. <laughs> Paul did not learn this until we had one that was via telephone, and it was, I think it's Uber Conference, that sends out the time <laughs> spoken after, and Paul, I think, talked three times as much as everyone else on the phone This combined. was the meeting where I was trying to be quiet and let Ellen talk more. <laughs> <laughs> so she, she'd been telling me this for, for quite some time, and it wasn't... Uh, but you're like, I have metrics now. I have metrics. Really? Well, she, she, didn't, she didn't even point out. I was just like, I, I was looking at the thing and it's like, it says I spoke this much. I literally thought there was a bug. <laughs> Do you remember when we were at, at, at Web Summit and we thought there was a bug? I think I think there was a bug. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think they cut us off short. I, I think you just. Oh, really? Yeah, I think we can pull the video. Oh, no. So you like to talk. Apparently so. How do you deal with the fact that? You're the talkative CTO, like, or talk less. <laughs> try, I, try I, I like when you talk. I think it's fine. I have no need to be the person talking all the time. I think that you have a lot of very good answers for things I don't know, and so <laughs> when I talk, I just like I hear some. I hear a question I don't know, and I'm like, oh shit, I better start to talk to cover like mass the fact I don't know the answer. And it's like Ellen is sitting there going, I know the exact answer to this. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> yeah, we we got our strategy down. It took a little while, but I don't like to talk, so that helps. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the original story of the podcast is um, Heavy Bit wanted to do one with John and me, mm-hmm. you know, of like our startup struggle or, you know, just, oh, like, yeah, you know, yeah. like a week, like at every two week check in of the startup. Oh, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah, because we, we'd come in when we were. should have done that. I didn't think the production values were high enough. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd come in when we were four people and they're like, this would be a good thing. You could get some publicity. And John, like, asked John and John's like, I had software to write, I had things to do. The microphones were in high quality at the time. Now they're fantastic. These are this the same is... microphones. Way to sell me out. The entire time I've been <laughs> yeah. doing this, they've been exactly the same. <laughs> Super high quality and, the whole way. And, and we sat out there, it would have been like a half hour. Thanks for selling me out. <laughs> <laughs> Any minute not spent writing code at the beginning is a wasted minute. Thank you. You're it's never it's getting it's back. It's true. Oh, so, so John That's said he wasn't going to do it with me, and I waited another week because I'm patient, and I asked him again. And he still said no. Now, now I couldn't. I couldn't even. It was years before they let me on this thing. <laughs> I asked you three times because I'm, I'm persistent. I'm like maybe he'll have um, changed his mind after the third mm-hmm. one. He um, he's like, and I, was, uh, and I asked Paul, and then Fred. <laughs> what happened to Fred? <laughs> I think I vetoed Fred. <laughs> I know it wasn't anything. About, wasn't anything about Fred. It was just like. Two people is the right number of people for our podcast. <laughs> like three, three is, is too many. The exact quote was Fred talks too much. Really? That's <laughs> ironic. <laughs> Thanks, Ellen. And well, and you said it in an email to him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, you have to say things to, to people's face. <laughs> Being honest is good. <laughs> it's okay. Fred doesn't listen to this. We can say whatever we like. Uh-huh. <laughs> How did you decide to go to a really tiny school? Yeah, I went to a tiny engineering school in Needham, Massachusetts called Olin. And 
I originally did not want to go because I, when I went, it had full tuition scholarships. And I thought, if you're in an engineering school and you have to have everyone go for free, you can't possibly be a good school. Why would anyone do this? Um, and then I spent more time with the school. And it turned out it had been started out of a foundation that used to build engineering buildings. And they wanted to change how we taught engineering and move it away from we're going to fail out one of three of you into we're going to make engineers who can actually build things for people and not just solve problem sets, and then who can actually sell those things to people and not just be like at the whims of MBA types. And I think I was just really, I, I just loved the curriculum so much that I was like, I see myself here, I want to go here. And then we had a two-tiered admit process where you applied and then you went for a weekend and actually got to build stuff and meet people. And so by the time I started, your, our incoming class was 89, and I think I already knew like 60 of the people and they already felt like my best friends. And so it's sort of like, I'm going to go be with my best friends now, even though they were these people I'd met for a weekend. That's pretty cool, because MUD was pretty much the exemplar of the other one. Like uh, We started with 169, and we finished just with 128. That's why I knew it, because I'd counted everybody that got failed out. That was how my high school was. My high school class started with 180, and we finished with 131. And we had an Olin building. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like similar missions. They're very similar. The Olin curriculum was taken pretty heavily from MUD and Cooper Union and MIT. Feel like a chump going to a regular university. Oh, I, we don't have PhDs. I'm the chump here. Everybody else has a graduate degree. No, I dropped out. Oh, do you feel like that's helped you? Or well, yes, I got to be at a company from one to fifty people. And that was delightful, and then I got to meet Paul and start this company. So it seems good. We still put HBS on the pitch deck. Better half. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I have a final story. So John, has it been what you expected, or what surprised you? I think the surprising thing is like. And this is super cliched, but like you always feel at some level you're gonna like hit a success point where you feel like everything is all your like the stress level will go down. Like, haven't hit that yet, have you? Oh yeah, it's funny. I made a joke in a speech the other day, a talk I gave that like um, I I was not very good at selling, but I felt I had this huge pressure because like I had you, I had our first engineer, like I had to get much better at fundraising and selling. So that was really stressful when we had no customers. And no money, because like literally, I was like, okay, I talked to my good friend into quitting a good job, and I talked to Patrick, who had a baby, into doing this too. That was a lot of stress. But it it shifts, but there's like the same amount of stress, at least from my perspective. I think for me, it's a different level of stress now that I want to do well by the employees. I want to do well by our customers. People are trusting us, mm-hmm. but it's very different than like, oh my god, we literally have no money. Yeah, I suppose. But now it's like you literally feel like. 25 people are relying on you to get everything right instead of just Patrick or just me, right? Yeah, but we have a business now and customers. Like, I mean, it took us a year to get our first paying customer. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that was hard. Yeah, that sounds difficult. I mean, we were in this new product in a new market. Like, the first person to pay us took a year, and that was a long kind of period of like, mm-hmm. is, is this a going concern? I mean, we're, we're in this place where, like, our first paying customer, it's like, not even going to be a year. It's going to be. It's going to be a while. That's a fucking scary town. Oh yeah, it's like it's just it's an expensive hobby. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, Circle CI, our first customer is three months, and paying was six months. So we we had customers. It just took us a year to get our first. Well, it was the first one to give you money. Actually, I'm I'm making it sound. Hard. We deliberately didn't want to take money for a little bit because I didn't want to lock our pricing into stone. Mm-hmm. So we had people using us. How long after you started? We had our first person use us about two months after we started. Oh, that's great! Because I was always just like, we got to get people to try this. Like, uh, was uh, was the product terrible at that point? It was terrible. Yeah, it was. It was. I was writing all the front end code, so that's how terrible <laughs> it was. It's not terrible. It was too late. Yeah, I, I was very like 
vigilant. I was like, we got to get people to try this. I don't yeah. care if it's you think it's broken. Like we we need to have people using this. Yeah, I, I remember looking at our, one of our dashboards, and when that customer went live, it was like six requests per second hitting our service, and I was like, how are we going to stay up? This is massive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think we do. I don't know, fifty thousand per second now. It's crazy, Dad. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So I, I was just always very disciplined of this can't be a hobby because I saw other people in our accelerator who treated it like a yeah. hobby. Who were like, oh, look at us, we're a startup. Yeah, we, we try to avoid that. Yeah, we definitely try to avoid that. I had one of those. It was not very productive. The the startup you were in where it's like, it's a hobby or... Yeah, the six of us who none of us knew what we were doing, it definitely was, we're playing, we're playing startup. We played startup for a year. Yeah, I, didn't, I mean, I didn't want to do that. Yeah, no. I think it's fun when you're 19, and then maybe not after that. How do you guys drive like urgency, knowing that what you're building is such like a moonshot in a lot of ways? Like, there's there's so many ways for you to like. I mean, you're bu- you're building something so ambitious that you could be expanding the scope over and over again. Like, I think if I was working on the problem you guys are working on, I'd like I'd, <laughs> I'd I'd immediately just keep blowing it up and blowing it up until like the scope of it was so large, and it'd be hard to like focus in and wonder how you guys manage that. I think it's about getting the right time horizon. And so the nice thing about having a moonshot thing is you can be like, in 15 years, it's going to be everything and it's going to be amazing and it's great. And everyone can kind of feel anchored to the, I'm going here in 15 years, it's going to be awesome. And then most days everyone needs to show up and be like, what is the most important thing I can build right this second, like today, this week? And most of the time people don't even need to be thinking about three months from now other than in a very like fluffy sort of way. Most of the energy is spent on what can I do today to make this go faster. Yeah. Last week, it was, so we have our... our Monday meetings, right? And, and Monday we like plan and sort of we 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 say where are we on the plan? Like, are we you know achieving what we're what we're hoping for? Are we you know getting the validation that we thought we we're going to have? Are the hypotheses being proved? But last week on Wednesday we redid the plan a little bit and then a little bit again on Thursday and a little bit on Friday as we got more information and as we as we sort of figured out more of what we're doing. So it's very like short. Time horizons on specific hypotheses, uh, and like it might be three days, it might be three weeks on a, on a, on a particular hypothesis, it might be three hours on, on some hypotheses. But the fact that we're able to keep those things short mean that we're, you know, it's not we have to build everything. It's like it's this one very very specific thing we want to test out, and that drives the direction that we're going. Thanks for listening to this episode of To Be Continuous, brought to you by Heavybit and hosted by me, Paul Bigger of Circle CI, and Edith Harbaugh of LaunchDarkly. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. While you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. Thank you.